Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I remember it very clearly. It was December 1999, and I was on the radio talking about what kind of electronics were worth buying with Christmas money. And I can recall saying something like this. Given what's happening with digital music and CDs, this might be the last year you'll have a chance to buy a turntable. So, if you still listen to a lot of records and need something to play them on, consider getting a new turntable, because by next year, they could be all gone. Seriously, that's that's where we were back then. CDs ruled, and vinyl was ancient history. And while a few people had heard about MP3s, we were still over a year from Apple introducing the iTunes Music Store. So, vinyl was done. Dead. People were dumping their collections on used record stores, leaving them at the back door of thrift shops in the dead of night, giving them away to gullible friends or just throwing them away. Fast forward 10 years. The music industry is in a tailspin. CD sales are dropping week after week. Piracy is eating into the sales that remain. And revenue from the sale of music is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, to the point where they're half what they were in 2000. Everywhere you look, it's negative growth. Well, almost everywhere. After bottoming out in 2006, a very strange thing happened. Sales of vinyl records started to go up. In 2008, sales had doubled. By 2011, they doubled again, and doubled yet again by 2013. Something weird was going on. A format that was supposed to have been dead and buried a decade ago was somehow undergoing a fascinating resurrection. Okay, so it still represented a tiny fraction of the overall market, but it was growing, and it was profitable, and most incredibly, it was cool. How did a music storage format that's been around for more than 100 years turn into something so hip in the 21st century? That's a really good question. And the answer is kind of a long one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. Everyone knows by now that buying vinyl records is hot and cool again. And it's not just new releases. I mean, have you been to a record show lately? Have you been into a vintage vinyl record store? Heck, have you been into an Urban Outfitters recently? Vinyl is everywhere. Traditional bricks-and-mortar record stores, the ones that still exist, stock vinyl again. Amazon is the biggest seller of vinyl in the world. Record labels are issuing expensive box sets that almost always come with high-quality vinyl pieces. And it's to the point where almost any artist knows that if they're going to cover the marketplace with a new release, they have to put their album, or even their single, out on vinyl. There's a renewed fascination with this ancient format, and for that reason, I thought it might be instructive to look back on the entire history of vinyl, and along the way, I'm going to play some records from my personal collection. Sometimes the songs will have something to do with the narrative, other times not, but I'll still try to make the selections as cool as possible. All right, let's begin with this. I'm here in my home studio, surrounded by all manner of gear, including a Pro Tools computer, a Blu-ray player, a cassette machine, a VHS machine, and a 2010 Techniques SL1200 turntable. This turntable is pretty much indestructible. If you've ever DJed in a club, you'll know what I'm talking about. I bought mine in 2009 after Techniques announced that they were phasing them out, but because they're so well-made, this is probably the last turntable I will ever have to buy. 
So let's pull out a record. When Radiohead released their In Rainbows album in 2007, I shelled out for the Super Deluxe box set. When it arrived in the mail, it contained the album on CD and two 12-inch pieces of 180-gram vinyl, each running at 45 RPM and each containing half the album. So let me put that on. There we go. This is House of Cards. Radiohead, direct from vinyl. All right, let's start with our history of the format. Thomas Edison may have invented how to record sound with his phonograph, but he used rotating cylinders. The guy who came up with the idea of storing music on a flat, rotating disc was Emil Berliner. He first demonstrated his device, which he called the gramophone, in 1888, and he got his patent, number 564,586, in 1896. The turntable had arrived. And people liked it a whole lot better than Edison's rotating phonograph cylinder because, well, it sounded better, a cylinder wore out after about 160 plays, and point number three, a disc had two sides. So think about that for a sec. That meant that a Berliner disc, which was five inches across, or sometimes seven, had double the capacity of an Edison cylinder, something the new recorded music companies liked very much. The death knell for Edison cylinders came when a British company called HMV, yes, the ancestors of the music store, endorsed the gramophone over the phonograph. Edison was stubborn, but he abandoned cylinders completely for discs of his own in 1913. But he insisted on using a mechanical format that was incompatible with Berliner's discs. You see, the needle on an Edison record tracked in the grooves with an up-and-down motion. Berliner's stylus moved from side to side. This meant that the record skipped less and lasted longer. Gramophone records used superior technology, and Edison was out of the record business completely by the end of the 1920s. But even once the idea of discs caught on, there was little in the way of standards. Some companies made records that were 7 inches wide. Others issued 10-inch discs. Still others, like 12 inches. 14- and 16-inch discs weren't uncommon. And in 1904, a British company called Neophone issued records that were 21 inches wide. The bigger the disc, the bigger the capacity. But not every turntable could handle every size. Can you imagine playing a 21-inch record? And get this, some machines and records were designed to play the disc from the inside out, not the outside in. And then there was the matter of speed. At what speed should a record be played? Ponder that for a moment while I pull out this 45 RPM 7-inch record that I bought at Jack White's Third Man Record Store in Nashville. It actually has the catalog number TMR001. The A-side is the Deadweather's Hang You From The Heavens. The B-side is this. It's a cover of Gary Newman's Our Friends Electric. That was from a 7-inch single turning at 45 RPM. We'll get to that whole business of 7-inch versus 12-inch versus 33 versus 45 later. But first, let's get back to this idea of a standard speed. In the early days, record player manufacturers issued their own recordings so that people would have something to play on their new record players. 
The problem was that no one could decide on what speed a turntable should turn. It all depended on the manufacturer. Berliner's original discs turned at 70 RPM, but other companies went anywhere from 50 to 120 RPM. Naturally, this resulted in a lot of incompatible records and a lot of consumer confusion. The audio geeks in the crowd went for machines with variable speeds so they could match the speed of whatever record they bought. Eventually, though, everyone came together and decided that 78 RPM would provide the best level of sound, the optimum capacity per side, and the least wear. But even this wasn't completely standard. It all depended on the electricity supply in the country you lived in. In Canada and the U.S., our electricity was supplied at 60 hertz at 120 volts. In Europe and the U.K., electricity comes at 50 hertz at 220 or 240 volts. This means our 78 RPM turntables actually ran at 78.26 revolutions per minute, while in Europe they ran at 77.92 revolutions per minute. It's not a big difference, but those with sensitive ears could hear it. Gramophone discs were pretty good for the time, and they were wildly popular beginning in the 1910s. Between 1914 and 1916 alone, more than 150 phonograph-related companies were established in the United States. Ownership of the new talking machines went from 540,000 Americans in 1914 to over 2 million by 1919, and that was in the middle of a war. But they were very fragile. They were made of a weird mix of shellac, cotton as some kind of binding agent, powdered slate or limestone, and a wax lubricant. And there were very few actual record stores. If you wanted records, you bought them where you bought your phonograph, which was probably your local furniture store. For the most part, record stores did not exist then. I should point out, however, that the oldest record store in the world is Spiller's Records in Cardiff, Wales. It was established in 1894, and the place is still open. Record sales went through the roof after World War I. But then a new technology called radio came along, and in 1922, the record industry was thrust into recession. You think it's bad today? By the time the Depression started... The record industry had shrunk by 95%, 95%—104 million units sold in 1927 to less than 6 million in 1932. The number of labels controlling the market dwindled to just four. There were terrible price wars with a race to see who could charge the least for a record. You could buy a 78 for as little as 10 cents. And who got screwed the most in these deals? Uh, The artists and the songwriters. Does any of this sound familiar? By the way, both Thomas Edison and Emil Berliner were out of the record game by this time. Edison just gave up on his phonograph system, and Berliner took his money and became a campaigner for the pasteurization of milk, and he also tried to build some helicopters. Two things saved the recorded music industry. The first was the jukebox, an automated machine found in bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and truck stops that could play a favorite song for a nickel. By the 1940s, there were a quarter million jukeboxes installed across North America, and they all had to be regularly stocked with new records, and that accounted for 13 million in annual sales. The other thing that saved the industry was a century-old chemical compound called polyvinyl chloride, which, for lack of a better term, is plastic. And that's where we'll pick things up after we get into this piece of plastic from Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam has always been big into vinyl. In fact, they've been kicking against CDs since they started. 
When it came time to release their Vitalogy album back in 1994, they released a vinyl version of the album two full weeks before the CD, and it sold a healthy 34,000 copies in its first week, a record that stood until some guy named Jack White released an album called Lazzarato in 2014. Pearl Jam from 1994's Vitalogy, released first on vinyl, November 22, 1994, and CD 2nd, December 6, 1994. All right, back to our story. By the 1920s, chemists and engineers had figured out that polyvinyl chloride was very good for making sewer pipes because it didn't corrode or degrade. Then, in 1931, RCA was experimenting with vinyl as a replacement for the crappy materials that went into making 78s. RCA even started making vinyl records that were 12 inches in diameter and were ready to sell them to the general public. But it was the Depression, and no one was in the mood for introducing a new format into what seemed at the time to be a dying industry. Remember that revenues had collapsed by 95%. So not only did RCA give up, but they also let a bunch of their patents expire. Dumb, dumb, dumb. And I'll show you why that was dumb in a second. By 1948, things had started to turn around for the recorded music business. Lots of money was being made supplying jukeboxes with new records every single week. New electronic recording techniques made for better sounding records. Musicians unions, organizations dead against playing records on the radio and other uses, had begun to make peace with the fact that they wouldn't be getting the same sorts of gigs that they used to. And with the defeat of Japan in World War II, the supply of shellac had once again opened up. Now, let me explain that. Shellac is derived from the secretions of the female lac bug, which is found in the jungles of Malaysia. When the Japanese occupied the Malay Peninsula after 1941, shellac became in very short supply. And at one point in the middle 1940s, if you wanted to get a new record, you had to first trade in an old one. So raw materials were an issue. There were other reasons to finally introduce an improved recorded music source. Number one, audio quality. 78s were lo-fi. They had to sound better. Number two, capacity. The maximum amount of music per side of a 78 was about four minutes. So if you wanted to issue a recording of, say, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, you had to break it up into four-minute chunks, which is not exactly the way Ludwig van had intended. But the record labels didn't have much of a choice. The capacity thing. So they stuffed nine, 10, 12, 15 individual records into sleeves that were bound into books that looked like photo albums, except these were called record albums. Now you know where the term came from. This was hideously expensive, though. A hundred years ago, a couple of collections sold for $100 or more. Adjust for inflation, and you can see the problem. Number three, about 78s. If you got 125 plays out of a 78 RPM record, you were lucky. The damn things wore out fast. And number four, we talked about this earlier, durability. 78s were very, very breakable. They were worse than glass. They were like delicate china. It fell to Columbia Records to come up with a solution, which is where we get back to this plastic, polyvinyl chloride, which had been refined by Union Carbide in the 1930s under the name Vinylite. Led by a guy named Edward Wallerstein, the president of Columbia, and an in-house engineer named Dr. Peter Goldmark, Columbia started working on what they called the microgroove record. 
Because vinyl was so tough, it was possible to cut the grooves closer together, and more grooves meant more music per side of the record. And because vinyl was so smooth, there was less hiss and other noise generated by the needle as it was dragged through the grooves. Remember that 78s were made from materials that included powdered slate and limestone, powdered rock. Not exactly the quietest or most hi-fi material. And if the record was a nice even one foot in diameter instead of the 50-year-old standard of 10 inches, Columbia got the capacity up to 20 minutes per side. And 20 minutes was more than enough because Columbia research into classical music noted that 90% of all classical works could fit nicely on two sides of one of their microgroove records. All right, what speed should that record turn at? Using information from the expired RCA patents and some audio technology pioneered by the film industry in the late 1920s, Columbia engineers working the geometry of the situation decided to go with 33 and one-third revolutions per minute of a 12-inch record with grooves cut anywhere from 224 to 300 per linear inch. They called this the Long Playing Record, or LP for short. This was all very secret, of course. Columbia didn't want any of their competitors, including especially RCA, to know what they were up to. The big day came on June 18, 1948, at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on Park Avenue in New York. Forty members of the press entered a room where they saw a big stack of 78 RPM records. It was more than eight feet high. Next to it was another stack of flat somethings, but it was only 15 inches high. Edward Wallerstein stood up. You're here to witness the unveiling of a revolutionary new technology, he said. And with that, he pulled a 78 RPM record from the 8-foot stack and put it on a turntable. And for four minutes, the room was filled with the scratchy sounds of classical music, the best sounding of all of Columbia's classical recordings. Four minutes in, and midway through the first movement, the music came to a halt. All right, big deal. That's the way it had been for over four decades. Everybody expected to have to turn the record over. But then Wallerstein picked up something else, this time from the smaller stack, and put it on another turntable. It was the same recording, except that it sounded much better. And it went on and on and on for a staggering 22 and a half uninterrupted minutes. When it was over, the reporters were stunned. Some thought it was a trick, but it wasn't. This was the official introduction of the 12-inch long-playing album, the LP. That record was basically identical to the vinyl that we still buy today. And just so you know, the first LP ever manufactured for consumer use was a performance of Mendelssohn's Concerto in E Minor for Violin and Orchestra, Opus 64, with Bruno Walter conducting the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York. It was released to the public on June 28, 1948. Here's more actual vinyl. This is an alternate recording of Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart. It's a single on a 12-inch record that spins at 33 and a third, which is just a tiny bit unusual. A somewhat rare alternate recording of Joy Division's 1980 single, Love Will Tear Us Apart, direct from the vinyl. 
Back to the Columbia-RCA rivalry. Columbia invited RCA executives into their boardroom in April 1948, some two months before that big press conference, to demonstrate their new technology. RCA freaked out because they knew that they'd been scooped, and scooped badly, and with technology that they once possessed, but let slip away due to some dumb clerical error. Columbia offered to license the technology to RCA, but they said, no, no thanks. And that led into a brand new format war. We'll get into that next. This is part one of the history of vinyl records. And now we're up to the summer of 1948, when Columbia Records just blindsided their main rival, RCA, with a new technology, the 12-inch, 33 and a third, long-playing album. And knowing what we know today, you would think that this would have been a slam dunk for everyone, right? Well, no. We have to remember that up until that summer, the world had been very, very happy with records that featured one song per side. That was how people consumed music. Who says they wanted 20 minutes of music per side? And wouldn't that just require the design and manufacture of a whole new type of turntable? And didn't we just have a world war? Come on, we should be thinking about other things. It's rubbish, said plenty of record executives. 78s are just fine. We'll stick with what we know. Meanwhile, RCA knew that they had to do something. Otherwise, their market dominance in both North America and Europe would be in jeopardy. The one thing they did realize is that vinyl was a much better raw material for records than shellac. So they drew up plans for their own version of the vinyl record. They called the project Madam X. Engineers went back to their archive notes from the 30s to try and come up with a single song format that could hold more than four minutes aside. When they got to the bottom of the archive, they found notes that said the forebearers in the company that would eventually become RCA had experimented with something very close to what they were looking for back in 1901. This was promising. And because RCA was also a consumer electronics company, they also figured they could make a lot of cash by manufacturing record players just for their new records, just like they were doing back in the old days, the 1910s, when you bought your records from the furniture store. Then, in February 1949, a little more than six months from the big Columbia reveal at the Waldorf, RCA introduced the 7-inch single. We'll get to that story after we hear a 7-inch from the Gaslight Anthem. This one is on clear vinyl. It's a fairly limited edition, about 1,000 copies, and it was released in June 2009. The B-side features a live recording of the band covering Pearl Jam's State of Love and Trust at a show at Webster Hall in New York. And the A-side is one of the big singles from the 2008 album, The 59 Sound. In fact, it's the title track. A 7-inch on clear vinyl from 2009, the Gaslight Anthem and the 59 sound. So, why would RCA decide to go with a 7-inch record spinning at 45 RPM, other than to screw with Columbia's 33 and a third LP, I mean? Well, it has to do with math. Using a little geometry, engineers put the record grooves on the outer half of the record, this presented distortion and wear when you got towards the center when the grooves were packed more closely together. So this meant that a two and a half inch radius from the dead center of the record had to be, well, dead, no grooves. It was reserved for the label and a buffer zone for the tone arm after the song finished playing. All right, so you didn't have as much real estate as you thought. What about increasing capacity though? Well, that wasn't really possible given the area of vinyl that was available. 
You could stretch things to eight minutes if you had to, but that played hell with wear on the inner grooves of the record and didn't really want to do that. However, you could lessen the need to get up and turn over the record every four minutes. How? By manufacturing a record player with a special spindle so you could stack these new records on top of each other. When one finished playing, the tone arm would swing back and the next record would drop into place. A slight lip on the outer edge of each record would help keep the delicate grooves from grinding together. This wasn't really that much of a problem because, like I said, RCA also made record players. They could pretty much sell these new players at cost and make up the money by selling records. Kind of sounds like iTunes selling songs at 99 cents so Apple could make big money selling iPods, doesn't it? Oh, and there was one more design need. Engineers figured that if these new records were going to be dropped down a 6-inch spindle, a bigger hole was needed to distribute the friction and torque stresses more evenly. See, a small hole wouldn't be able to handle those forces and would quickly wear out and go out of round, causing the record to wobble as it played, which is not a good thing. When the hole was wrecked, the record turned unevenly, resulting in extra wear and skipping. 78s had suffered from that same issue, thanks to the fact that they turned so fast around such a small hole. So why have it turn at 45 RPM? The myth is that RCA just subtracted 33 from 78. Not true. Again, it's all down to the mathematics of capacity versus fidelity. Please don't ask me to explain it because geometry was never anything I was very good at. By the end of 1948, the 7-inch single was ready. Journalists were already writing about how consumers were going to be confused by three different types of record. The 78, the 33, and now the 45. Does this sound familiar? MP3, AAC, WMA, so on. The 45 was officially introduced on March 31st, 1949. And the first official release was this. Texarkana Baby by a country and western singer named Eddie Arnold. My Texarkana baby, do I love her, Lordy love? Her pappy came from Texas and her ma from Arkansas. I'm twisted around her finger like a little piece of string, and yet I'm satisfied because she's such a precious thing. If she hauled off and slapped me, I would never feel the sting. She's my Texarkana baby. The first ever 7-inch single, released March 31st, 1949, by RCA. And here's a weird bit of trivia. The vinyl used for that record wasn't black. The first single was pressed on green vinyl. RCA had come up with a system of color-coding records by genre. Country was green, serious classical was red, popular classical was midnight blue, yellow was reserved for children's records, international songs were sky blue, Rhythm and Blues was Cerise, not red, Cerise, and your everyday pop records were on black vinyl. It's a nice idea, but it didn't last very long. Let's try another 7-inch single. This is a Sex Pistols record I bought at a record show somewhere. It's one of 84 different 7-inch pressings of this record from around the world. It's on the Virgin label. It's from 1977, but I can't tell if it's the UK version or the one from New Zealand doesn't really matter, though, because at best it's worth about five bucks. The 
Sex Pistols from 7-inch vinyl dating to 1977. By the end of 1949, consumers were rather confused. There was the 12-inch 33 and a third long playing album. All the major record companies loved it and had committed to adopting the format. Except RCA, of course. RCA was determined to push ahead with their 7-inch 45 RPM single. Except when it came to their classical catalog because they put that out on LP. But nothing else. And that seemed to signal that RCA was giving up the fight. And 78 RPM records were still very, very popular and still being manufactured in huge quantities. RCA had to release both 78s and 45s. Meanwhile, Columbia had to release both 78s and 33s. Music fans were very annoyed for a while. They didn't like having to take sides, nor did they like the idea of having to buy proprietary hardware just so they could play the records issued by the side they chose. Does this sound like Apple versus PC, anybody? As a result, record sales, regardless of format, went into a tailspin. From 1949 through to about 1954, the 12-inch album and the 7-inch single duked it out. It was Columbia versus RCA, each trying to woo other labels and companies and music consumers to adopt their formats. Meanwhile, the trusty 78 was still hanging in, and it would until the very late 1950s. RCA's big selling point was that by stacking their records on their special record players, you could have up to 50 minutes of music, as opposed to just the 4 minutes of a 78 or the 22 minutes of an LP. Millions was spent on advertising just like we saw with Blu-ray versus HD DVD. Meanwhile, consumers were confused and angry about being forced to buy record players until a number of electronics companies started selling record players with three-speed motors. So with just the flick of a switch and the addition or subtraction of a record spindle, you could play any format you wanted. RCA eventually softened their stand, too. Chairman David Sarnoff enlisted a guy named Thomas Hutchison to figure out a cheap and convenient way for consumers to play their 45s on a record player with the standard, tiny, three-tenths of an inch wide spindle. Hutchison came up with something he described as a centering device for phonographic records. It's a piece of plastic that snapped into the big hole of the 45 with a little hole in the center, which was then placed over the smaller spindle it fit. Hutchison called his 45 adapter a spider. Now, this may or may not be the truth. A search of patents leads us back to a guy named Frank Jansen, who invented something that did exactly the same thing. We do know that it was released in 1952, before the RCA thing. And there was a company out of New York who issued something called the Snap-It, which was the same idea, and there were at least half a dozen other styles of adapter. But the most famous adapter is the one that looks kind of like a three-armed swastika. It's the one that we see on t-shirts today. It was invented by James L.D. Morrison for the Voice of Music Corporation of Benton Harbor, Michigan, and that patent was filed in 1951. Tens of millions of these things were in circulation by the 1960s. Today, though, the majority of 7-inch vinyl issued comes with a standard small hole. Why? Well, because no one stacks records high on tall spindles anymore, so no one needs a big hole to absorb all those torque stresses. So here we are in about 1950. Three formats are fighting it out. The 78 was going to lose. It just wasn't good enough anymore. So who would win between the LP and the 45? Then an interesting thing happened. Everybody started to get along. And for a totally unexpected reason... 
On part two of the history of vinyl, we'll pick things up in the early 1950s when something wholly unprecedented emerged in popular culture, and it would take the evolution of vinyl records down completely different paths. For a while, anyway. Let me tell you something. It's a great story. Be back here next time for part two of the history of vinyl. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 